All right, welcome everybody. This is Derek Bodner, joined by Rich Hoffman on this week's Sixers Beat, a part of the CLNS Media Network. How you doing? Let's, we'll start off there. We'll start off there. Is that how we start podcasts? You usually just that do is a, how we start podcasts. How you doing? I'm doing great. How man. you doing, Rich? Um, I was, uh, you know, hope everybody's Christmas was good. It's uh, it's kind of a weird week here where the Sixers are playing. You, you know, not totally unimportant games, but just doesn't feel like there's a lot of juice. People are kind of just running around, doing their own thing. Should I work? Should I not work? Anyway, I hope everybody had a great Christmas or, or whatever you celebrate, if if you celebrate anything. Um, but I'm doing good, man. And, uh, you know, the Sixers, they had a tough, uh, tough day on Christmas. <laughs> they had a tough day on Christmas. They are 2-1 and one in that stretch of the Raptors, Celtics, and Jazz with the important caveat that the Raptors sat half of their team. So I guess we'll start off there. Of the three games, you probably attribute the most meaning to the Celtics game. I think that would be fair to say, right? Definitely. So how much of the past week, and I think we spoke after the Raptors game. In fact, I'm, I'm sure we did, we did it in person. How much of the past week, do you view this as a good stretch of basketball or a bad stretch of basketball? Well, I mean, if you're going to give me two options, I, you know, it's very, uh, very different. It's I would limiting, lean, yeah. I would lean more towards good. The, it, it, you said it the other night, just before, and I'll let you go. The, I, I think going into the Boston game, we knew all the weaknesses everybody complained about afterwards. We knew that their bench is not good enough. We knew that their shooting is too inconsistent. Perimeter defense, a problem. Ben Simmons against the elite defenses, not great. But considering how close they came in Boston and the way they played in that game, and then bouncing back to beat a decent Utah team, I feel like, you know, if J.J. Redick's shot goes in, and, you know, we could talk about that play, it was – discussed uh, ad nauseum. If that shot goes in, are we looking at it completely differently? Because I I don't think that's the way to do it. I I feel like you should look at at that game and how they played more than the result. Because we, you know, in April and May, we can start obsessing over the results. Those last plays are going to matter more. But for now, just this team was getting absolutely drilled earlier in the year. For them to play a competitive basketball game that I didn't feel it was like a mistake that they were in and almost pulled out in Boston, for me, that's that's good enough. Yeah, I mean, it is – we have talked ourselves and, – and by the way, a lot of this has to do with the um, with, with the Sixers themselves. They've, they've been talking about – they feel like their window is now. But we have certainly talked ourselves into a championship or bust mentality. That's been reinforced by the Sixers' own words and by Jimmy Butler's acquisition. And to see them come out and and struggle really in the final couple minutes of regulation and then in overtime against a team that has caused them a lot of struggles, if that was any other team other than the Celtics, nobody cares. Uh, And, I mean, they have, by and large, held on to leads this season, even if it doesn't always feel that way. They have held on to leads at least at a league average rate. So that's that's good. They have not given up those big leads, even though they still have third quarter struggles. And that is a team that they haven't been competitive against 
all the time. And they came out, and after a slow start, they really played well. They had a look at the end of the game to win it. They shared some of the same problems with Ben Simmons, and we'll get to that. I ran the numbers recently on the nine games. Simmons has played against the Celtics regular season and postseason. What would you guess his overall plus minus is? This astounded me when I looked it up. I saw a stat on Twitter the other day. Yeah, they, they had this last seven games, I believe it was. Yeah. So wasn't it like minus 90-something? Negative 125 over nine games uh, in 403 minutes. <laughs> the next closest person that's still on the team in terms of plus minus is uh, – actually, hold on. This is a good so, question. So it bothers me when people say they're a bad matchup for him. They're really good. They're a bad that, matchup for a lot of people. They're yeah. a bad matchup for a lot of people, you know. Uh, but of it, people still on the team, Markel doesn't count because he's not really playing. Dario's negative 57 is gone. Covington's negative 77 is gone. Bayless negative 26 is gone. The next closest, I believe, is J.J. Redick at negative 15. Yeah. So I think there's something, too, that they both have the personnel. You know, I think I, I read about this today, and today being Saturday. Always have to get that out there because you never know when I'm actually going to post this damn thing. It's true. But I, re- I I looked at this today, you know, and the other two starters who are still with the team, like I said, J.J. Reddick's at negative 15 in um, – oh, I should have the numbers right in front of me – negative 15 in 350 minutes against the Celtics. And Joel Embiid is actually a plus 10 in 358 minutes. So the starters who have been here the entire nine games – they're not suffering the same problems against Simmons. And you start asking, is there something to that? And I didn't mean to start off this podcast talking entirely about Ben Simmons, but here we are. And I think there is. You know, I think they get back in transition. We covered this last year in the playoffs, but I think they get back in transition better than anybody else in the league. And I, I mean literally anybody else in the league. They, they really only sent Irving to the, uh, to the offensive glass a lot of times, and he was causing yeah. some havoc. But they're, they're bigs and they're better defenders are pretty much getting back at all times. And there's just a discipline to there that is hard to hard to reach. And also a personnel who can match up, you know, get those uh, cross matches and transition and not look foolish. But so they cut off his main strength, which is transition game. They have enough switchable defenders so you can't hunt a mismatch and try to get something out of Ben Simmons in the half court in his post up. And then they also know how to use that lack of space to make Embiid and Butler's life more difficult. And I think he did a pretty good job of diagramming on theathletic.com slash Philly why that's not just Embiid post-ups, but also DHOs and, and pick and rolls, where they're able to use that spacing to their advantage. So I think the combination of all of those things has made Ben Simmons' weaknesses more pronounced against them and against the Raptors than they otherwise are. And I think that's something that we talked about a lot um, leading up. Like, I think that's something we acknowledged and something we expected. But by and large, you know, Joel Embiid had a much better night than he has historically against that team. And, you know, the guys, Bane's not being there plays a role in that, but Joel Embiid looks yeah. very good. I mean, he, um, he torched Tice. Yeah, he, he torched did. him. Yeah, he did. His eyes lit up. Um, they have no answer for Kyrie Irving, and that was pretty evident. And I, quite honestly, I, going back and rewatching it, I thought that Jimmy Butler played him better than I expected. That's a tough ask for Butler to do all game, and they have no other real second option outside of that, so it's it's not a, a perfect matchup. 
But if you're going to ask me, is Boston still a problem? Yes, they are. They're, to me, a better team. They're a deeper team. Uh, they're, quite frankly, a better coach team, and they're a bad matchup with Ben Simmons. But I do think it's fair to say that the Sixers have made up some of that ground, both because Embiid has, has, has improved a lot and because of the Butler acquisition. And if they competently fill out the rest of the roster, they can close even more of that gap. Yeah, the the two Simmons shots that were – I mean, they, they were kind of embarrassing. I, I think they were – they were transition looks, and he uh, he tried to attack Horford in transition. One of them was at the end of the game, or at, in uh, in overtime, and then the other one I, I don't remember what quarter it was in. But he basically is just throwing up these right-handed shots, kind of flying into the uh, into the baseline that have just no chance of of working. And yeah, it's you know I, I just don't like that when. Ben Simmons plays against a good team who can exploit his major weakness that he can't shoot or he won't shoot outside of five feet. And by the way, that's not true. Congrats to Ben, 22-footer. <laughs> it was, of course, spinning with his legs kicking and drifting left to right. But, yeah, he made it. He made it. <laughs> Longest shot of his NBA career. Uh, the, the teams that can exploit that, I, I, I don't – it kind of frustrates me that it's only then that we, you know, it turns into – should we trade this guy? And I mean, this we need to build around Embiid and all these things. Like this problem exists at all times. It just he's so good, and most of the other teams don't have either the personnel or the coaching or whatever to neutralize it in the way that Boston can. Um, yeah, but but it's it's frustrating. I mean, you you talked about it. Uh, I think a few podcasts ago, the fact that he's almost regressed as a shooter, like coming into this season. I believe he said something to the the effect of, I'm not going to be shooting threes this year. And, you know, that's just the way it's going to be. And I, I thought to myself, okay, that's fair. Maybe he'll he'll try to extend his range, you know, incrementally, and this is going to be a process. But the fact that he has regressed and, you know, when they run any action where he's getting a handoff and the Celtics can just go under, he's not even looking at the rim. And it's, you know, it's... It's a problem that I, uh, you know, I, I don't want to trade him. I uh, think the Sixers should still try and build around him. He's an elite talent. But, yes, his shooting is a major problem. And don't be surprised when they play Boston and Toronto and these teams again uh, that they, they're able to exploit it. It's, uh, you know, it is what it is at this point. This is Simmons shooting is my least favorite conversation surrounding the Sixers right now. And it's mostly because you have to go to one extreme. You have to either be shooting isn't actually a problem, hashtag well actually. Or you have to be you know, to the other extreme where Simmons is going to be the reason this team never gets out of the second round. Get value when you can. He's a fraud. And it seems like there's so few people in the middle. And I know that's not true. Like I know there are people in the middle and it's just the people on the extremes have the loudest voices. Not necessarily in terms of their reach, but that they're, they're the most vocal about it. They're the most passionate about expressing their opinions. And we also, in media, and yeah, there was a, a Ringer podcast where they suggested trading Ben Simmons. Like, this is starting to creep into mainstream. And I think a lot of our incentive structure, both as fans who like to argue online and as media members who like to talk about sports online, is to not only have a loud opinion, but to be there first. And it's not just first, when people say first, it's not just reporting news, but it's also arriving at an opinion. And, you know, I think in terms of 
team building, you know, being first to an evaluation has a lot of benefits. You know, I think that's what we said about the why the um, Michael Carter Williams trade was so successful and why hanging on to Nerlens and Jaleel as long as they did was so unsuccessful because they were quick to a decision with MCW and late to a decision with Nerlens and Okafor. So there's value to that. But I think we go to an extreme because we all want to be able to say, look back in four years if this thing doesn't work out or doesn't reach the lofty expectations everybody has set. You can be, aha, I was the first one to say this. I said this four years ago. God, I'm so smart. And that's as an existence on the internet. That seems to be our entire reason for existing. And I think that leads to these overreactions. I think it would be true that Ben Simmons is an incredible talent that he is helping this team win, that he is a net positive player and will be, by the way, on a 25% max contract because those guys are criminally underpaid, while also saying that his lack of development in the jump shot is very, very frustrating, that it does put a ceiling on the Sixers' half-court effectiveness, and that it does limit to some degree, and we can argue whether it's overstated, but to some degree your best player's effectiveness. Like, I think all of those could be true. And I do think we lose perspective in the here and now. You know, the one I'll always go back to is the Warriors. Do you know how long it took Steph Curry to win more than 51 games in the NBA? Came into the league in 2009, 2015, 16 or six years. Yeah, it took until his sixth season. It took until the fourth season of Splash Brothers for them to win more than 51 games or to get out of the second round of the playoffs. And I think we forget some of the completely absurd arguments that were made during that time. Can't win in the playoffs with jump shooters. That was a thing that was said not too long ago. Hey, Chuck, how you doing? Um, That you, at one point there were talks about building around Monte Ellis over Steph Curry. And it's easy to think that's ridiculous now, and it was ridiculous at the time. But Ellis, I think, was like 26 at the time of that discussion. You know, I think he ended up being washed out of the league at like 31 or 32. But this was a conversation people were having. And it's one thing to be frustrated. It's another thing to lose perspective with that frustration. And I think we do that a lot. You know, you don't you don't talk about trading Steph Curry and keeping Monte Ellis without some frustration setting in and without maybe some stagnation setting in. And that that that's frustrating. Ben Simmons is 22, man. He's 22. There's no reason to think he won't be a better player at 25 than he is now. There's no reason to think that they won't continue to get better as fits between Simmons and Embiid than they are now. And I get that the Butler trade puts some level of a timeline on this. You have to convince Butler to stick around. And if you're successful in doing that, you have to try to win before he starts degrading as a basketball player. That's all true. But just... Calm down. We don't need to make this decision right now. If you, if in two years Ben Simmons is on a max contract and doesn't have a jump shot, and that really is a crippling flaw that you cannot scheme around with Joel Embiid, you can trade Ben Simmons. He's going to have value. He might not have the same kind of value he has now, but you're not going to be quote unquote stuck with Ben Simmons. I just don't. I don't get why we all have to pick either Team Simmons or Team Anti Simmons and stick in our corners and fight about it. It feels very much like the Okafor Noel stuff. Except this is like a really good fucking player. Like, yeah. <laughs> calm down. Calm it ma- down. It matters a lot more. Yeah. The, uh, you know, you know, there's one thing that I saw in the Celtics game, and it's something that me and you have talked about just watching the games uh, live at, at the uh, at the Farg, and 
just just watching the spacing and everything play out. I do think Brett might need to try and diversify where he sticks Beb. Yeah, the dunker spot ain't he ain't getting any dunks off of it. I and I get it. It's hard to put him in spots, but it's funny when they run that one play where they run like a brush screen for a Simmons post up, and sometimes they'll hand the ball off to Butler. Off of that, on the other side, they run J.J. Redick off a stagger screen. Why don't they just do that once in a while with Embiid posting? Because yeah. the thing is, if Simmons' guy isn't going to guard him, then he becomes an amazing screener <laughs> for Redick. Like, if he can make contact, Redick's wide open then. Um, yeah, I, and I this, this what, is yeah, coming I out. What, oh, I was going to say I have an article coming out which casually mentions that, quickly mentions that, which we haven't seen because – Hasn't come out yet. I agree completely. Um, use Ben as an off-ball screener a lot more. Don't sit him down in that dunker spot. You know, I think, you know, besides the um, – I think that's an easier pass for a perimeter player to make, which is why Chris Anderson was so ex- uh, effective with that in Miami, and, and hence the Birdman zone gets its name. You know, but Brett used to use that a lot in San Antonio with Duncan too. And that's a very difficult pass to make. That's a very difficult read to make. And I think Duncan's – really unparalleled ability to sense a double, double team might be skewing Brett's view of how realistic that pass is. And Bede right now, for all as great as he is, and he is he is better than anyone would have expected in his third year, he still struggles at times with consistency in reading double teams. The Sixers don't move well enough off the ball, and I'd like to see them kind of rectify both of those by moving more and using Simmons as a screener. I, I agree completely. Yeah, for a team that, that really does move the ball so well in their base offense and, you know, the ball's picking around and there's these dribble handoffs and everything, it does come to a screeching halt when JoJo gets the ball in the post. Yeah. And, yeah, I don't, I don't know what the answer is because I think you see this all over the league. You see it with the freaking Warriors right now, man. They're, they have no idea what to do with Draymond Green. Because nope. he can't shoot and should we use him as a screener? Uh you know, you know, what are they going to do? So they don't have any idea, and they have three of the greatest shooters of all time surrounding him. They're not And a Hall of Fame coach. Yeah, and they're not shooting. Um, you know, Clay Thompson's not shooting like that. But, yeah, they, they, they have these problems too. So I don't know exactly what the answer is, but I think for a while now, I mean, I, I think going back to last year, on the Embiid post-ups, Simmons will stand in the dunker spot. And I, I just feel like, Let's let's experiment a little bit more. Let's try and figure out some other stuff. I don't know what that answer is, but, you know, I, I just think, like you said, I don't think I've ever seen Joel make that pass to Ben for no. a dunk. He made a great pass to him the other night on uh, on the elbow set where Ben ducked in for uh, for like a, a short little hook shot over Ingles. It was nice, um, but not, not from that, that setup. And, yeah, I, I don't know what the answer is, but I think, you know, just watching the end of that game and, you know, the struggles getting Joel the ball, which he uh, he made it loud and clear again after the game, um, I, I just feel like they, they got to try some, some more stuff in the uh, in the half court. I, I don't know what the answer is, but just the, enough of the static offense at the end of games. Are you, are you getting concerned about Joel's frequently disgruntled post-game press conferences? Well, I'm not concerned because we don't care. Um, we're, we're part of the media, so it doesn't matter. He could be as honest as he wants. Oh, he, he's great for us, yeah. Yeah. So, and, you know, I, I didn't really see video of this. So I, I sometimes 
when you hear these quotes from him, they can be taken out of context because he's he's just kind of talking at, at some points, and he's he's disappointed, and it doesn't seem like there's too much uh, malice in his words. But he also I, likes to kind of go in full circle. Like he'll start off with, yes. "Oh, I need the ball more," yes, he but does. then by the end, he's like, "I got to do a better job and do this." And he he talks he he's he very, talks around himself. Yeah. Very Colangelo-y in that uh in that aspect. Uh, yeah. So I I don't know exactly. I, I will say, if I was one of his teammates, if I was his coach, that shit would get old pretty quickly. Yeah. I mean, what is it? After every tough loss, it's going to be, oh, I didn't get the ball enough? I don't know. And and by yeah. the way, Joe, you were being guarded pretty well at the end of that game by the person who guards you better than anybody in the entire league. I don't know. That's... Yeah, I mean, it is, it is so, you know, I think a lot of fans will come back and be, well, is Joel right in what he's saying? And I think we can debate that a little bit. Like, on the one hand, I think Joel has... I rewatched it. He probably could have gotten one or two more post-ups. But, you know, they they, they got some other shots, like, in transition. They got an open three for JJ. Like, shit happens, man. Yeah, and to me, that's beside the point. Like, it is... And I want to be crystal clear on this. I'm not saying that these comments are an indication of something large-scale wrong in the locker room between player and coach between player and player it it doesn't I, I, I'm not saying that but like you said that shit can get old quickly and fractures in the locker room have been started on less is Joe right is Joe wrong it doesn't matter handle that stuff internally talk to Brett about that if Brett and the system is your grievance talk to Ben if he's not executing the system do that privately If I'm talking about this from a team-building perspective, the easiest way for stars to get on the same page or off of the page is, first of all, to not be satisfied with their role, and second of all, to feel like other people are sniping to the media, to the public, about their role. And it's just, is this nothing? Is this Joel just venting and maybe they hash everything out behind closed doors? Is this a real grievance? I don't know. But you don't need to push it. I mean, this is now three times in maybe 15 days where Joel has pretty forcefully gone to someone in the media or at a post-game press conference and voiced his displeasures, his airing of grievances. It's a festivist season for Joel Embiid. <laughs> if you want to step up and be a leader, you have to cut back on that. You have to take the overall health of the team into consideration when you talk in public like this. And again, I, I, I like... Athletes, to some level, who have that brutal honesty, who wear their emotions on their sleeve. But there is some diplomacy diplomacy to be played here. And I think Joel needs to find a way to walk that line a little more, you know, a little more tactfully. Well, I think my problem, too, is I don't think he's always, he's always been right here. No. So, no. I mean, if it wasn't a situation where he just had somebody in the post – like, like if Daniel Tice was guarding him down the stretch of that game, he would have a point, I think. But but it was, I you know, we looked up the numbers a few weeks ago. I, I don't know. I, I've, I've seen some other numbers that have suggested that he is posting up less when those three play together. But I still think we're talking about, like, the just the margins here. And it would be nice, I think, from the, the Sixers' standpoint, 
I'm sure they would think, you know, it would be nice if he had a little bit more of an open mind about this and realize that, you know, even if he's not going to ultimately sacrifice because he is the best player on the team with the addition of Butler, there is going to be a feeling out period. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yep. And they're in it. And I got to be honest, you know, we say this all the time. I feel like this feeling out period has gone much better than I anticipated on the offensive end, at least. Um, so yeah, the, uh, th- that's where they are. I think they caught a break in that they're on the West coast. There's not too much media around the team now that seemed like they were able to, to squash it. It, and by the way, if you know, if you uh, want to read the body language, it seemed like Embiid was his normal self and excited, making passes and you know just generally pleased with how the Sixers played in in Utah. So so maybe they caught a break that way. But yeah, I would just say like at the end of games, is this going to be a thing at all times after a tough loss? Because you're right that that is how fractures can start. Um, and I think from the Sixers' standpoint, he's got to cut that out. The there are, are there have always been questions about how well Embiid and Simmons get along. There were questions about what the addition of Jimmy Butler would do in the locker room. There were questions about how the three of them would fit on the basketball court, and whether or not these are legitimate concerns is beside the point. They're topics of conversation that exist out in the NBA world. Don't give them ammunition. All you're doing with these statements is giving them ammunition to question it more, to talk about it more, to ask you about it more, to ask Butler about it more, to ask Brett about it more. You don't need to be out there giving them ammunition. Like I said, there's a diplomatic way. Joel, is he has, quite honestly, the most power of anyone in that organization. I'm not talking players. I'm talking anyone. And he has to be very careful about how he uses that because doing so in the wrong way could be detrimental. And that's, you know, like I said, is there a fracture in the locker room? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying no. it would be nice if he was a little more diplomatic in how he did it. No, then that's that's a great point because, honestly, from what I've seen, they do get along, all three of them. And Butler, I mean, again, it's the honeymoon phase, and we've, we've talked about how, you know, Jimmy's, Jimmy's past, sometimes things go wrong in the following years as opposed to right away. But it doesn't seem like anything's been off, you know, from the, a chemistry standpoint but you're giving everybody ammunition by saying that. So, yeah. So that final play. You, again, go to theathletic.com slash Philly. Rich wrote about it briefly for those who prefer audio format. What are your thoughts? Uh, I don't think I would have run it because it's so hard. The, the last shot of a game is so much different than even a shot with 20 seconds left. And you know, that's the, the shot clock isn't unplugged because on the last shot of a game, when it's tied, your goal should be two things. One, it's to get a shot up and two, it's to not allow the opponent to, um, to get a chance to tie the game or, or win the game on the other end. So, you know, preferably you'd like to take a shot with, I don't know, uh, two or three seconds left, maybe get a chance at a tip-in. That play, which they call 12, they run all the time. They ran it all the time last year. Sixers lingo is impossible to figure out. You'll never guess where the one or the two comes from. 
<laughs> they're pretty simple in that regard. It's a it's a one two screen <clears throat> where, where JJ Reddick screens for uh, Ben Simmons to start the play. Um, that said, like I thought Reddick could have executed it a lot better. He has executed it better in the freaking playoffs last year. Hit a dagger when we were in Miami uh, in one of those games. I think it was game four in the last minute of a game, one point game. I thought he he didn't execute it the right way because the first part of that play, he has to sell that back screen for Ben Simmons. And I I like the fact that Brett didn't call timeout, as I wrote in the piece, because they had, you know, the Celtics had to get a bucket, and of course they get that just ridiculous shot by uh, Kyrie. Like, poor poor Butler played that about (laughs) as well as you could have. And I, you know, I have no idea how that shot went in. So, I like that Brett didn't call a timeout, though, because he realized, oh, they still have Kyrie and Gordon Hayward on the floor. If I call timeout, Stevens will put in Terry Rozier and Marcus Smart, and then it gets a lot harder because they're way better defensively. So I like that. Uh, I guess the problem with the play, though, is that there's so many moving parts, and maybe sensing that and, and knowing that he wanted to get a last shot, Redick doesn't sell that screen for Simmons because I honestly – I feel like if he would have just screened Irving with with Hayward guarding Reddick and kind of not knowing what to do, Simmons might have just got a dunk. <laughs> he really might have walked down the lane and, and just dunked it. Um, and he didn't sell it. They basically just ran a dribble handoff. You could see Joel, who is in the corner on this play, who is a part of this play once Reddick gets the ball on uh, on the flare. He... Uh, He's looking at Redick like, what are you doing? Get get moving. And I, I think that's sort of the problem with running the play in that situation. It's just that there's so many moving parts, it's hard to get it timed up properly where you get the last shot and you make sure the Celtics don't get a shot. Um, I, think, I, so, yeah. I think you're right. I think the biggest issue with that play was Redick going too late. Like I think his timing, like you said, it's a game of, well, you want to keep your options open, but you also don't want to give the opponent you know, a look at the end, the ball back. And if your best option is the first option, then you're kind of screwed. And in the past, you know, that play is designed where it can have options. Like we saw that play executed earlier where Butler came off um, the handoff and with Simmons and got Simmons a, an open dunk. You diagrammed out where, you know, Reddick and Embiid then played a two-man give-and-go game where Reddick got an open corner three, and also another one where Embiid got a, a, a driving dunk off of it. Like, there are other options on that set. But when Reddick goes so late, none of those options have time to develop. And I think Reddick mistimed it a little bit. You know, I think, to your point, that's harder to do when the shot clock is unplugged and you're playing for that last shot. In a, in a, a weird way, I think that play has a higher chance of working if they're behind in the game, you yeah. don't want to make that trade off because you yeah. screw up, you you lose. But I think that play has a higher chance of working if you're behind. But I do also think the shot they ended up getting, even okay. if you even yeah. if you just limit it down to a, a dribble handoff with Reddick, that's probably similar to just letting Jimmy Butler ISO at the top and take a step back. Yeah. Like it's probably very similar end result. And I do think if you look, you know, a lot of people, I think, had the opinion that they got Butler for him to be that closer. And I think it's more that they got Butler for the fourth quarter than they got Butler for that final shot. Because if you go back and look at it, you know, I think in the last, I looked at the clutch numbers, which are defined as last five minutes, 
score within five points. And I'd like to limit that down even further, and I should have in preparation for this podcast, but I suck. But I think Butler shoots like 38% from the field and like 33% from three. Like he, and if you go back and just zero it in on the game-winning shots from last year, and that was from the last two seasons combined. And if you zero in on just the last second shots prior to coming to Philadelphia, I think he had really struggled in that in Minnesota. He tends to really settle for that step-back tough shot. And I think him making those first two kind of skewed our perception of what they should do going forward. And oh, by the way, they ran, you know, three game-winning looks for Butler in the last three or four weeks anyway. You need some diversity. It's not like this is the only thing they go to with the game on the line. So I don't really have too big of a problem. I do agree with you, though. I thought the timing of that was just thrown out of whack from the jump. And I think that really impacted what options they had. I mean, the Butler shots that he made were both garbage. Yeah, I know. Like, I, I, I remember doing a podcast with you and being like, great shot, but it was it, it was an awful look. It was terrible. And with the game, uh, at least the one against the Nets, he's going for the win. I think they were down two at that time. Uh I, I, th- this shot, you're just looking to get a bucket. And, you know, a Redick long two is is not a terrible look for him. Going to his preferred right hand, it was okay. I, I think they could probably do a little bit better. But, yeah, I also think overanalyzing the, uh, the final play kind of uh, gets you away from what's important, and that's how the Sixers look the rest of the game. They had, they, a, uh, they had the, a 50-50 shot with the game tied and shot clock unplugged. Yeah. The uh, clutch offense, by the way, they were uh, fourth last year, which kind of surprised me a little bit. I don't completely. I don't remember uh, all of the clutch situations, but they were they were fourth, I think, behind Houston, historically great offense, Golden State, and Cleveland last year. Like they were the next best offense with uh, the game at five points or less and uh, less than five minutes in the game. Uh, they're down to twentieth this year, so that definitely has to improve. And that that number hasn't really it, it's it's stayed pretty much the same when Butler got here. So they got to get better uh, executing when you know when things get tight at the end of games. And that's why you know when we talked about earlier, I would like to see you know like when Embiid posts up, maybe maybe a little more creativity on, on those plays. For sure. Um, nice bounce back win against the Jazz, though. Yeah, yeah, not bad. The uh, just kind of the, the first quarter was really sloppy, and it didn't seem like they they knew what they were doing out there. And then they really executed against the Jazz for the next two quarters. I uh, I think we talked about this a little bit earlier, but and I, I haven't looked at where the Jazz fall defensively. I feel like the rule yeah. changes might have hurt them. They're they're up to fifth now. Okay. So so they're playing a little better. I mean, the Sixers really freaking executed for those middle two quarters. And just the, the quality of shots they were getting was, I thought, so much better than what the Jazz were getting. You know, they were getting like, you know, Dante Exum was hitting some garbage shots just with, with the Sixers ducking under screens. Jay Crowder hit a few. Uh, Ricky Rubio really struggled offensively. But I, I thought the Sixers had a really smart game plan on defense, kind of just, just forcing the Jazz into shooting. And... Yeah, they, they they played really well. Yeah, and it it, will, it does goes to show that you play the Celtics, who I think have the best defense in the league, and we spend 35 minutes talking about that. And then they come back and they play the fifth best defense in the league, and they really have a lot of success, and we spent 
what, a minute and a half, maybe talking about that, which, and, and that, that's about representative of what the, the narrative is on Twitter and online about whether or not the three pieces can fit, because it's all been about the Celtics and none of it about the Jazz, who now they've played well against two games in a row, by the way. They played pretty well against them earlier in the month. Was it December? Yeah, it was in December uh, when they beat them at the Farm too. Yeah, it was Butler's first uh, home game. They, uh, somebody, I, I think it was David Locke on Twitter. He he made a point that he thought, uh, which I thought was interesting. He thought the Jazz uh, are a bad matchup. Uh, the Sixers are a bad matchup for the Jazz because, you know, the Jazz are really good at defending the pick and roll. And, you know, as we talk about all the time, the Sixers don't run that very much. And the the handoffs and getting Gobert to move side to side is actually a little bit tougher. For, for them to defend. I don't know if that's that's true or the Sixers just, just caught the Jazz on a rough night or or whatever. But, yeah, nice nice bounce back win. And, it, honestly, it made me feel better about my take after after the Boston game, you know, saying, okay, it's it, they're making – they still got a lot of work to do, but they're, uh, they seem to be making some progress. And bouncing back and beating a decent team on the road is, I, I think, a sign of that. Yeah, and I think uh... – I think the Sixers' second half output, I think they scored 57 points on like 30-some shots because the Jazz played a really slow pace. Uh, Redick, I know, had three threes. Shamit and Muscala, and their three-point shooting was on. And you are right. Like, Gobert and Embiid, quite frankly, are suffering a lot of the side effects of a league that continues to shift outside and continues to space not only at the one, the two, and the three, but also the four and the five. And it's a it's a challenge. And I guess we can transition quickly into that. What do you think of Embiid's defense here of late? Because um, I know you're generally supportive of the drop coverage, and that is coverage that's out of his control. That's Brett Brown's scheme. So what do you think about his defense as it relates to previous years? Well, it certainly hurt them against Kyrie. And it wasn't just him. It was Muscala was kind of dropping as well. But when you play somebody like Kyrie, who, you know, when we're talking about, I don't know, Steph and Kemba maybe are like the only other guys who I think, or maybe Dame Lillard, who can just jet around the screen and fire right away and get a good shot. That puts so much pressure on Jimmy Butler. (laughs) To, yeah. to get around those screens. I don't know. I mean, because there were possessions in uh, in that game, though, where Embiid was uh, was positioned a little bit higher, and I, it wasn't always Kyrie, but Horford being so smart and the Celtics being well-coached, he would slip that screen, and then they'd play four on three, and they got open threes. They didn't make them, but they were good shots, and I think that that's important to look at, too. So I don't know. I, I I do wonder if with this and this I'm not blaming him for any of this, by the way, but it's just natural. The minutes he's playing and the offensive load he's shouldering, I just I don't think he's quite the same guy defensively that we've seen in past years, and that's okay because he's more than making up for it on the offensive end. But yeah. It, It'll be interesting if they find one of these guys in a playoff series. You know, when we talk about, you know, it's kind of like when they played the Nets and the, the Cavs in that one game too. If there's a guard who is just going to pull off of that pick and roll, 
if the Sixers decide to make any adjustments or if, if Joe Help just, you know, he might even go off script and just be like, I, I can't watch this anymore. I, I, I don't know. It's the drop coverage is, I understand it in theory, but when you watch a guy get hot from, uh, from the perimeter, it can be, it can be pretty frustrating. Yeah. And I think, I would say I think Embiid's energy defensively is down a little bit. Like, I don't think, and there are plays, it's one thing for drop coverage. It's another thing to just never bother putting your hands up. I think there are, he can close that gap a little bit without compromising the backside. Like, I think he doesn't expend quite as much energy defensively as he did, certainly as a rookie when he was shot out of a cannon, but even last year. And I think that is a bit a byproduct of playing time and workload. And like you said, if you can get him beat out there for 35 minutes and he has to compromise his energy level on the perimeter defensively a little bit rather than playing 30 minutes, you take that for the extra time you get him on the court. You take that for what he can do offensively. But I think it is, I think it is, is down a bit. And it will be interesting, like you said, when you get, you know, I think NBA coaches by and large, and, and Pop is, you know, renowned for this, where he will look, I don't care what the other team does so much. I care about what we do. And until we can execute perfectly, we're going to play our scheme. And I think in the regular season, coaches generally stick to that. You know, I think they keep a consistent theme. If they drop coverage on a, you know, one five pick and roll, I think they're probably going to continue to drop coverage most nights, especially for these teams who aren't, where every game isn't a, you know, isn't going to be whether you make or break the playoffs. Yeah, it's not life or death. Yeah. But when you get into the playoffs, like you said, and you're playing a Kemba or you're playing a Kyrie, do they change it up then? Especially I think they're going to have to, by the way, and, at and some I, point. I think Brett made changes, especially in that um, in the Miami series where you know, everyone will point out that he got outcoached by uh, by Stevens, but he also outcoached Spo. So I think he I think he will try to make adjustments. Um, but it is like you said when what, some of these guards get hot, and to be honest, I'm not sure. With the personnel they have, like I'm not sure there's a solvable pick and roll scheme to overcome their deficiencies. Um, it's it's tough. It is tough. By the way, if Muscala makes a couple threes, we don't have this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's something else. And you know, we mentioned that the bench has not been good enough all the time. But I mean, God, the quality of looks he was getting was re- it was high and. It, it, one of my favorite things is when a player is struggling and they finally make a shot, Hubie Brown hits him with a there you go. And <laughs> Muscala got a big there you go when he made that three to give the Sixers the lead. <laughs> he was like one for seven and Hubie, yeah. Hubie gave him the there you go. But yeah, he, you know, it, so much of it is, is going to come down to shooting too from these bench guys, these guys that other teams want to take shots. And I, you know, Muscala shot like it looks okay to me, but you can't go one of eight in Boston when you're getting good looks. So, well, and and the problem with Muscala is he doesn't do anything to really offset a, a an off night. Like he's brutal in space. Uh, he can't protect the rim. So when he's out there and his shot isn't falling and he's a liability, then I mean, what are you doing? There's just nothing. Like at least. Ilyasova, he'd be in position defensively. He'd take a charge. He'd set a screen. Like, he did all of those things at a plus level, so he could at least offset a little bit an off-night shooting, whereas Muscala, when he's off like that, there's just no other option, and you're not going to a mirror in that kind of a spot. Um, 
Yeah, for as much as we spent the entire time talking about the fit of the big three and the big four, the bench is still like, and that's part of the reason why, and not that many people are suggesting trade Simmons or that it can't work, but let's see what these guys look like, not only with more time, more than 18 games to play together, but also when they have a competent bench. And look, against Boston, they, you know, I think it was what, the 13-1 run came with the starters on the court. So you might say, oh, well, it wasn't the bench who lost the game this time. And if you're just looking at that section, that's true. But the team went the first 29 minutes of the game without the bench making a shot. Without making a shot. And that's a strong point of this bench is their offensive productivity. Relative strong point, if you can even say that. They don't have – there's so much pressure on those big four of Embiid, Reddick, Simmons, and Butler – to be good and to consistently be good because they don't have any way to really overcome that when they go to the bench. Yep. But again, we we all knew this before the Boston game. You did. We knew but it. And, and It doesn't change it, if Muscala makes a three. It doesn't change if Redick makes that shot at the end of regulation. <laughs> they're still the same problems. And I, I, I get it. A lot of fans, I think, I think the fact that it's Boston too. If it was hundred percent, if it was Milwaukee or it was Toronto or somebody, I feel like there would be a little more understanding. I get it. There's just a level of can we just beat these guys for once? Well, specifically a West Coast team too. If it was the Clippers in a couple of days on on New Year's Day, nobody cares. First of all, because everyone's hungover, but also because nobody, you know, if you lose a regular season game to the Clippers, nobody cares. Um, and you can look at the big picture a little easier. We'll see how the Sixers look. Drawing the uh, – being able to spend New Year's Eve in Los Angeles and having to play the next day, <laughs> that's not like a, a favor from the schedule makers, no, I'd say. No, it, no, it's not. And I was going to say at least it's 1030, <laughs> but that's 1030 Eastern time. I will be much more recovered than the team will, also because I'm an old man who will not party as hard as the team will. But <laughs> Yeah. All right. So I think that's probably a good enough spot to – jump off. Is there anything else that has happened? It's only been two games since we did a podcast, so there's not all that much to go on, but is there anything else that has happened that you want to touch on? No, not really. I, I think the Sixers, uh, it was funny watching the Warriors the last couple nights. I feel like they, they're not getting them at the right time. If they were getting them on this trip, I'd feel pretty good about them beating <laughs> yeah. them. Yeah. When is the uh, when is the Golden State game? It's in late January. Yeah, enough time for uh, for them to get healthy and Draymond too. Well, who knows if Draymond will figure that shot back out. He's been on an extended year downturn, but certainly they have time to figure it out. And at the end of the day, and I think this is something, I, I guess we'll end the podcast on this note, but I think it's something Zach Lowe brought up on one of his podcasts. I think the Warriors have spoiled us on what, you know, quote unquote, big X, big three, big four in the Warriors' case, hmm. teams look like and how seamlessly everything fits. And now you're shooting. Well, because of the shooting and all the pieces just kind of meshed. And now you're seeing with Draymond where maybe even just a little drop in his shooting and all of a sudden it unravels a little bit. And by the way, I still expect the Warriors to to figure it out. I think by and large talent wins out. But I think talent winning out is sort of what we went on beforehand. You know, I think if you would have just looked at pure fit, the Miami Heat weren't a perfect fit. Shaq and Kobe even weren't a perfect fit fit, although this is, you're talking about a much different game of basketball back then. Um, you know, Kobe with Lamar Odom and Andrew Bynum and Meta World Peace, they weren't perfect fits, but talent finds a way. 
And I think that's something to sort of keep in mind here, especially as we talk about what the team can grow into over the years. It's not a perfect fit. And maybe it'll improve. Hopefully it'll improve. Even Ben Simmons just adding a corner three-point jumper would make the world of difference. But there's a lot of talent, and I'm not – I think people giving up on it are giving up on it way too quickly. So. Yep. I think Miami is the better comparison. They they had to work through a lot of issues, and I think the Sixers can be even a little bit more of a clunky fit because of Simmons. But, yeah. And not as talented. Uh, not as talented. No. Well, they don't have LeBron James, so no. that's, that's tough. Makes it uh, yeah. All right. Thank you for jumping on, and we will talk to you soon. Hey, man. See you.